Welcome to Third Man Walking. One thing I've always struggled with in my poker career is how hard to push myself in moving up stakes. Which is better, to win $50 an hour at 5.5 or to win 60 at 5.10? Or what's better, to win $80 an hour at 5.10 or 100 at 10.20? Well, it sounds easy. You want to make the most money, so play the higher stake. But actually, there's a lot more to think about. Bart Hansen has spoken many times over the years about a version of this dilemma. Years ago, he opted to play mostly 510, despite likely being able to make more dollars per hour at 1020. At 510, he dealt with very little variance, whereas in 1020, he'd routinely have downswings well into the five figures. These downswings made it psychologically unpleasant to play the hours he'd need to put in at 1020 to make the same money he'd make at 510. So he'd play 510, which he found easier, and have no trouble putting in volume. He thus might wind up making more money in 510, despite his hourly being lower. And these aren't the only reasons you might choose to play lower stakes despite being potentially more profitable at higher ones. If you aren't adequately bankrolled to play the bigger game, you face more risk of going broke playing that game, even if you might make more money in it in the long run. And then there's the fact that none of us really know what our win rates at various stakes actually are because in live poker, there are sample size problems and because conditions constantly change. The pool constantly gets tougher or softer as players filter in and out and work on their games. And hopefully you're getting better at poker as you go. So your win rate is always a moving target and the best you can do in figuring out what it is at any given time is to approximate. Poker players also have a way of massaging our numbers so that we can tell ourselves we're better than we actually are. Delusion, as we've talked about here on Third Man Walking quite a lot, is real. That alone might be a good enough reason to play most of your hours in a smaller game, even if you think you're more profitable in a bigger one. And a final reason why you might want to play in a smaller game is that playing bigger can be exhausting. I played 2040 No Limit a bit last week and was struck by how tired I was after just five hours. When I play on Live at the Bike, where the stakes are big and the cameras are on, I feel incredibly wiped out in about that amount of time. In 510, I can play eight hours and not really even feel it because I'm so comfortable with the swings and with the decisions I'll have to make. So one plus to playing in smaller games is that they're boring and you can conserve your mental energy. Of course, one minus to playing in smaller games is also that they're boring. And if bankroll isn't a concern to you or you have a gambling sickness gene that I absolutely do not possess, Maybe there's some argument for pushing yourself incredibly aggressively, challenging yourself, and living your poker life as fully as you can. Maybe you rapidly improve against tough competition and become a great player. Maybe you win a ton of money. Or, and this possibility is probably more likely, due to variance and to the delusion factor I talked about, you wind up broke or just burn out. Throughout my poker career, I've been conservative with what stakes I play, which has allowed me to put in more volume than most regs do. There also, I guess, has been virtually no chance I'd ever go broke. But I do think it's important to push yourself sometimes, especially when you see a good spot. And that's why you'll sometimes hear me talking about playing 2040 or playing 2550, 50, 100 on live at the bike. I'm not sure I could play that big every day, even if those opportunities were available. But I will throw my hat in the ring from time to time, and I think that's good. Now, maybe I'm just a nit, or whatever, 
but I often think about how weird high-stakes poker is. Not bad, just weird. When I do take a shot in a big game, whether it turns out well or poorly, what I find myself thinking most often when it's over is, wow, that was crazy. I'll think, wow, I just stuck in $10,000 with King High, and then I'll shudder a little because $10,000 is a ton of money, and a decade ago, $10,000 would have made a massive difference in my life. Sometimes, in fact, that was more than I made in an entire semester of teaching. Poker has been my main source of income for a while now, and I still think a lot about how strange it is that I routinely place bets that are bigger than my rent. Some part of me yearns for a job with a regular paycheck, where I know I'll get a certain number of dollars per month, a number that is not exciting to me, but that reliably pays the bills. A few years ago, I played a lot and gambled very hard with a player who was born and raised in an extremely poor and embattled country. I remember him talking at the table about people he knew in his home country who had virtually nothing. I said, and here we are, gambling for thousands of dollars, and he replied, yeah, it's insane. Every couple years, there's some bizarre story that goes around about players behaving crazily in the $10,000 main event of the World Series of Poker. In 2019, for example, a player in the main event went viral when he went all-in blind with Queen-3 offsuit, then pulled his pants down, mooning his opponents and anyone else who was around. And what I found most striking about that story wasn't actually the mooning part, it was the all-in blind part. The fact that this gentleman bought in for $10,000 and then cared so little what happened after that. The fact is, though, there's lots of that and many gradations of that in poker. People like me need stuff like that. We need people to buy in for huge amounts of money and then not care what happens. Which means, of course, that we need people who are either huge gamblers or who have lots of money that they're not overly interested in keeping. Which also means that my existence as a professional poker player is just an artifact of this place in time when there are lots of people with much more money than they need to live. And of course, every job is in some ways contingent upon the quirks of the economy in which it exists. But this is still something I think about a lot. I get to do this insane thing for a living, but only because gambling trickles downstream from the business world and the stock market and real estate and crypto, all of which carry weird little rafts of extraneous money. There is this part of me that will never stop shuddering after big sessions, that will never be fully, permanently inured to how strange high-stakes gambling is. Sometimes, though, high-stakes gambling feels temporarily normal to me. Like, I speak its language, and it speaks mine. Poker starts to feel real. It stops feeling like this extremely strange thing I do to make money, it starts feeling natural, fitting seamlessly into the logic of what I imagine to be my life. Maybe I'm winning a lot, or I'm losing a lot, or I'm just playing a lot, and there's a sort of rhythm to it. And somewhere along the way, some important part of me, or some necessary context for my life, disappears. During these periods, when I'm away from the table, I find myself wanting to change the subjects of conversations to poker, or some hand I played, things my friends and family from outside poker probably wouldn't be too interested in. I don't usually do that, but I sometimes want to. And I still feel the money from poker swirling around me, even when I'm not actually playing. 
there was a period of time like this recently that lasted for a while. And my girlfriend got upset with me. We had a disagreement over something that seemed unrelated to all this and actually raised our voices at each other for a couple minutes. Something I can't recall us ever having done in several years together. And then she said that I hadn't been present lately, that I hadn't seemed that interested in her, that I hadn't been genuinely affectionate towards her in a while. And she was right about all those things. And it wasn't because I didn't love her or didn't want to be with her. I was just lost. My head was just this vortex of money and chips and numbers and suits. I was still coming home and writing music and reading, and maybe I was even doing those things fairly well. And I never treated her outwardly badly or anything, but she was right. For a while, I wasn't really mentally there. And I think some of what I'm describing, this fog following me home from my place of work, is probably just a symptom of having a job. I've had other jobs and, and gotten lost for long stretches in their rhythms too. But it's easier to get lost in poker for all kinds of reasons. Because gambling is addictive, because you will feel driven to prolong winning streaks or stop losing ones, and because your play will suffer over time if you aren't deeply engaged with the game. So she was pretty upset to the point where it seemed for a second like the relationship might be in jeopardy. And for a moment, I thought about what my life would be like without my girlfriend. I imagined leaving her and my cat behind and moving into some studio apartment, probably closer to the casinos and putting in some absurd number of hours at the tables because what else would I have to do? I imagine never cooking, working deep into the night, waking up in the morning with circles under my eyes and just being fully lost, making huge monetary decisions over and over, but never thinking about anything truly important. I'd make more money living this Spartan nocturnal bachelor life. So for a while it would be easy to justify to myself. And as I think through all this and write it down, I worry that what I'm imagining doing is succumbing to gambling addiction. And I'm wondering if I've been addicted to gambling for years and it's just never really seemed like that because I've always won. But I don't think that's it. I don't think I'm addicted to anything, but if I were to be addicted to something, I think it would be to work. I think back to some time periods earlier in my life where I deeply immersed myself in something to the exclusion of all else. Like when I was early in grad school in San Diego and trying to learn how to write the kind of music I wanted to write, which was really hard for me at the time. I remember walking around a bit near the end of one of these stretches and really feeling the sunlight. And of course in San Diego, it's sunny almost every day, but I mean really feeling it. And I realized it had been weeks since I'd had a real conversation with anyone that wasn't about music. Maybe that was necessary when I was 24 and needed to learn how to do something difficult. But I don't want that kind of fog to descend over my life again. I want to be fully present when I talk to people. I, I want to be present when I'm listening to music or reading or writing. I want to live a full life. I don't want to be a casino zombie, a job zombie. I spent the summer after I graduated high school 
bagging groceries and carrying them out to people's cars. Occasionally, not often, but enough times that it made an impression, I'd have to work from 2 or 3 p.m. until the store closed at 11 or so, and then I'd have to come in the next day to open the store at 6.30 or so and work until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. I remember coming home after these back-to-back sessions and having fitful naps where I would dream that I was a can of beans being scanned and placed in a paper bag. Now, that was no big deal. It was just one of the few times in what's been a privileged life that I had to do physical labor that I hated for more than a few hours at a time. But I felt so free when the summer ended and I got to go to college and I thought, I am not a can of beans. And I think that now I need to remember that feeling of freedom and to try to feel it again when I can. To remember that gambling for large sums of money shouldn't necessarily feel natural to me. Remembering that it's unnatural is my way of shutting it off, of not being a gambler and going back to the rest of my life. So I need to do the gambling that pays my bills and then to stop and shudder again and think, I just bluffed off $4,000. That was weird. And then I need to be the part of me that isn't a gambler. That's a part of me that is at least as real and hopefully more real than the gambling part. The part that loves being with my girlfriend and writing and playing the guitar and talking to my siblings and hiking and watching basketball and reading and eating tacos. I want to do those things and to remind myself to really feel them, to appreciate the very real life that's sprung up around me despite the fog that can descend over me if I'm not careful. Poker has been an overwhelmingly positive force in my life. But at the end of the day, I need to be able to stop being a gambler and to just be a person. It's March 12th, and today I want to talk about a 2040 No Limit Hold'em session I played a few days ago. Playing bigger games than you normally do is tricky for a bunch of reasons. One, obviously, is that the money is bigger and the decisions you make will be for greater numbers of dollars. But also, generally, of course, as you move up, especially if you're playing in public games as this one was, the players will be capable of more stuff. And you don't always know what they'll be capable of, but just axiomatically, they're likely to be better than the players in the lower stakes games you usually play. And finally, when we move up to play a bigger game than usual, we're less likely to know the players because it's not our usual game. So if I'm playing 510, which is the game I play most days, there are a lot of players in the pool that I can play very, very well against because I sort of know what kinds of moves they like, what kinds of moves they don't do very often, and I'm able to respond pretty effectively to them. But if you put me in a player pool where I don't know the players as well, and the players are likely to be more capable of tricky things, then the variance just goes through the roof. 2040 isn't even a game that runs regularly, so you'll have some pros in it, and if it's going to be seven pros or something, I just won't play. But there will be pros in it, and then there will probably be a lot of players who don't come to that casino very often 
showing up because they saw the game on the app or because they're big Baccarat players who happen to see that there was a big poker game going or something like that. You'll just be dealing with a player pool that you're kind of unfamiliar with. And so it's it's probably just going to be a very high variance spot, even if it's a good spot. And there's also the danger of making incorrect assumptions based on small sample size. So just as an example, before I get into the uh, 2040 hands I played, I was in 1020 earlier this week, and that's a game I'll sort of hop into and out of based on the composition of the player pool at the time. So 1020 is a game that runs regularly, but it's a very pro-heavy game. If I can find a day when it's not so pro-heavy, I'll often jump in. So I found one such game this week and did play it. And there is a pro in that game who plays every day, who uh, I, I see him every day, but I have not played with him a ton, who everyone thinks is good and who sat two to my left on a couple different days in this 10-20 game and just played back at all my three bets. So someone else would open, I would three bet, this guy would like cold call in position or four bet, something like six out of seven times that happened, which seemed like a crazy high number. And also, I mean, a lot of pros will not have cold calls here. So it was weird to me that this guy was cold calling three bets a lot. And what I sort of thought was going on was this guy has been a pretty high stakes pro for a long time. And he's just seeing me come into his games and start, you know, three betting and doing things that he probably doesn't want to see happen against the recreational players. And he thinks, I want to get this guy out of the pool. I mean, I don't know if that's what was going through this guy's mind at all, but that's in my head what I sort of thought was happening. So there was a hand against this guy where after six out of seven times, him playing back at my three bets, another player raised, I three bet with pocket tens, this guy four bet, it folded back around to me and I was like, I mean, that's enough, you know, and now I have a good hand. I have pocket tens. I didn't write down how many big blinds I had, but it was a lot. And I five bet shoved all in with pocket tens, which is not at all a standard play or a recommended play. But I just thought this guy is, is way out of line. So he snap calls and the board runs out all low cards and I table my hand and win. And I was talking to my friend Mark about the hand afterwards, how I, I won this enormous pot, five bet shoving with pocket tens and the tens didn't improve and they were good. And I told him what I just mentioned about this player four betting me and cold calling my three bets all the time. And he says, are you sure that what you thought was happening was actually happening? And I said, no, <laughs> you know, I wasn't sure. And I think reflecting back on that pocket tens hand and how quickly my opponent called in that hand, he probably just had ace king. It was probably a totally reasonable play by him. And it's also possible, I don't know, but it's also possible that my five bet shoving for a ton of big blinds against this guy was a complete punt. And that all these other times that he's cold called a three bet or uh, four bet me, he's just had something. It's a small sample. That's definitely possible. So it's possible that I just imagined a dynamic that wasn't there and stuck in several thousand dollars 
with a hand that I shouldn't have. And fortunately I got lucky, but these kinds of dynamics come up a lot in these higher stakes games where you expect your opponents to be more aggressive and you don't really know what they're up to. So another dynamic like this develops in this 2040 game against a player I don't know at all. So in this first big hand of the day, a totally unknown player raises to $100 under the gun, and this is nine-handed here at 2040. So under the gun nine-handed, I call on the button with ace-king offsuit because my opponent has raised from under the gun and because there is a fun player in the blinds. And the big blind does make the call. So three players headed to a flop, 320 in there, and it comes ace, queen, six, rainbow. The big blind checks. The under the gun player, who is unknown to me, bets $80. I make the call, and the other player calls as well. So 560 in there now, heading to the turn, which is the deuce of hearts, creating a backdoor heart draw. The big blind checks again. The under the gun player now bets 520. So about six times bigger than his previous bet and almost the full size of the pot here. I make the call again here, again with ace-king on ace-queen, six-deuce, and the big blind folds. So about 1,600 in the pot heading to the river, which is the seven of hearts, completing backdoor hearts. And now my opponent fortunately checks. I think I'm about out of value here. I don't have a heart in my hand either, and I end up checking back. And my opponent just says, you win. And I table the hand without making him show. And I really wish I had made him show based on what's going to happen here in the next couple of hands. So what's becoming apparent here as this game develops is that this player who was my main opponent in the last hand is quite aggressive. He plays a big pot against someone else and shows a three that has no real connection to the board. And he and I are getting into some pots. So in this next hand, one of us has changed seats. I have ace king again and raised to 100 in the hijack. And the same villain is now in the cutoff and re-raises to $510. So a huge three bet here. It folds back around to me and I make the call. So 1,080 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes eight deuce deuce with two hearts. I do have the king of hearts in my hand. I check my opponent bets 330, less than a third of the pot, and I make the call. And now there's 1740 in the pot heading to the turn, and it's an offsuit four. So now eight, deuce, deuce, four. I check and my opponent bets $1,100, and I make the annoying but pretty easy fold here with my ace king. So this next hand is against the very same opponent. And this time I have pocket queens. So I raise to 100 in the hijack here again, and again my opponent three bets me. This time to a different sizing, 360, so 100 here to 360. And I make the call again with pocket queens. So 780 in the pot, we're going heads up to the flop, which comes 6-6 deuce, giving me an overpair with my queens. I check, my opponent bets 280, which is about what I'd expect based on what I've seen from him so far. And I make the call. So now 1340 in the pot, heading to the turn, which is a nine, creating a backdoor heart draw. I only started this hand with about 4,000. I wasn't playing super deep because this is a pretty big game for me. I check, my opponent bets 710, 
And now if I call, I will have less than pot behind. So I go ahead and rip it in here and my opponent quickly calls and I lose to his aces. So I think it's pretty straightforward to get it in here with pocket queens against a player being as aggressive as I have seen this guy be. But this time I run into it, you'll notice that his sizings were pretty different in this hand, both the sizing of the three bet and of the turn bet compared to the last hand, which makes me suspect he's using different sizes, smaller sizes when he has good hands and bigger sizes when he's bluffing. But I still don't know that for sure. And I certainly didn't know it when this pocket queen's hand was going down. So I get stacked here and I'm stuck about $6,000 at my lowest point, which is obviously a lot to be stuck. You know, a game this big doesn't even run all that frequently and it'll certainly take quite a while to grind back 6,000 bucks in 510. So kind of an annoying spot to be in. And in this next hand, I have aces in middle position and make it a hundred and the big blind who's a fun player makes the call. So heads up to a flop here, 220 in there. I've got pocket aces and the flop comes ace, king, eight, rainbow. So I have top set and the stone nuts. And surprisingly, my opponent leads for $150, which is very strange to me because not only should he never be leading on this board, but I have a hand that just really blocks all the strong hands he's supposed to have. So, you know, one possibility is that he has something like king eight for bottom two pair, but I think it's at least as likely that he's just doing something weird. Maybe he has a gut shot or something like that, or maybe he has nothing at all. And so the most profitable play when I have something that is this strong and blocks so much value is going to be to call. So I do call and now there's 520 in the pot heading to the turn, which is another eight. So now ace, king, eight, eight. And again, I have pocket aces. So my opponent now checks, and when he checks, my thought is that he was probably full of it on the flop and doesn't have much. And so for that reason, I think that although I don't like slow playing very much generally, this is gonna be a pretty good spot for it. I have a full house now, so if my opponent has a hand like Queen Jack or Jack 10, there's a lot of value in letting him see a river card trying to hit his gut shot and hopefully winning a big pot off of him if he does. There's also value in checking here and just hoping my opponent continues bluffing if he is bluffing. So I do check back here. So still 520 in the pot heading to the river, which is another eight. So now ace, king, eight, 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 and I have pocket aces for aces full. And now my opponent bets 600, which is very strange because if he did have an eight for whatever reason, he shouldn't be checking the turn. So it doesn't make a ton of sense to me that he would have quads. Maybe he has the case ace, which he played unconventionally on the flop and decided to check on the turn. So the question is, can I raise here with, with aces full and hope that if he has an ace and he has eights full of aces that he won't fold? And I think that he might call a small raise to 1500 or something like that. But I also kind of think that his sizing here on the river 600 into 520 might be an indication that he either somehow has an eight or has nothing at all, in which case there's not a lot of value in raising anyway. 
So I do just make the call here and my opponent shows queen eight offsuit. So he backs into quads here after donk betting the flop for two thirds with bottom pair and uh, my set of aces goes down in flames. So things are not going my way here and I have a couple hours left before this game is going to break. So in this next hand, the same player limps. I make it $160 in the cutoff with ace king with the king of hearts and my opponent calls. So there's 380 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes jack nine, seven, all hearts. My opponent checks and I check it back, figuring that my opponent can hit this flop pretty hard and that the king of hearts is a pretty good hand to have in my check range to play on later streets. So there's still 380 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit queen. And now my opponent bets 150. So 150 into 380, pretty small size. I do have the draw to a flush with ace king with the king of hearts on jack nine seven queen with three hearts. I also now pick up a gut shot. So I make the call. And so 680 in this pot heading to the river, which is an offsuit 10. So I back into a straight here with ace king on jack nine seven queen 10. No more hearts have come in and my opponent checks. So I bet 400 here, praying that my opponent has a king or maybe an eight or maybe a two pair type hand that he doesn't want to let go of, but he quickly makes the fold. In this next hand, a different player limps. I raise to 160 with pocket kings with no heart and my opponent calls. So heads up to another flop here with 380 in there and it comes 10.75 with a 10 and five of hearts. My opponent checks, I bet $200 and he makes the call. There's 780 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit five. Pretty good card here. My opponent certainly could have a five the way things have played out, but that's a small percentage of the hands he can have and I wanna charge a 10, a seven or any kind of draw. So I bet $500 here into 780, expecting to get called a lot here, and he does make the call. So 1780 in the pot now, heading to the river, which comes in offsuit six. So nine eight does get there on 10, seven, five, five, six. Again, I've got pocket kings, but hearts have bricked, and my opponent checks again. So now I wanna charge a hand like a 10. I don't think I can bet a ton here and expect a 10 to call a lot. So I make it 900 here into 1780. My opponent tanks for quite a while and ends up showing 10-9 offsuit and mucking. So makes the fold with top pair there on the end. But I do win a pretty healthy pot. And in this last big hand of the day, the hijack raises to $170, pretty big raise here. And I have ace queen of hearts on the button. So even though this raise is pretty big, my hand is just really strong and I three bet to 570. Now what happens though, is that the big blind cold calls and the razor folds. So these are always tricky situations when you three bet and then someone cold calls and the razor folds. When that happens, I expect I'll be up against a range that includes lots of like jacks through eights as well as hands like ace-queen suited, ace-jack suited, maybe king-queen suited. 
So a range of hands that is very strong, but also very condensed, probably doesn't have things like aces in it very often. Also, when my opponent makes this call, he only leaves about 2,200 behind. So I'm anticipating that things are gonna get pretty weird here on the flop. Fortunately, it does come queen eight seven with the eight and seven of diamonds. So I flop top pair, top kicker. And now my opponent leads for $600 into a pot of 1320. So if my opponent has diamonds here, we can certainly get him to call off the rest of his stack. He could also have a hand like king queen suited and he just doesn't have much back and I have top pair, top kicker. So I do shove for his last 1600 and my opponent surprisingly pretty quickly folds. So I end up winning the last few significant hands I play on the day and making a bit of a comeback. I lose about $3,000 for the day, the game breaks, and I actually head down to 510 and make a decent amount of that money back in 510. So again, I was stuck many, many thousands of dollars at one point fairly early in the session and, and I'm happy to have recovered some of that money. Fun session in 2040 with uh, a lot of, of players that you wouldn't necessarily see usually turning up in high stakes games. And uh, it's really a shame that I ran Queens into an aggressive player's aces. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Third Walking or send me an email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.